Now hear a reading from the Psalms. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. It is like expensive oil poured over the head, running down onto the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon, streaming down into the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, everlasting life. This is the word of God. Look at how good and pleasing it is to live together as, a, as families of one. I don't know about y'all, but in my own family, that's way easier said than done. This particular psalm is a pilgrimage psalm. It's a psalm of ascent. It would have been used as people, um, as pilgrims were on their way to or as they arrived in the city of Jerusalem for festivals and for high holy days. So I want you to just imagine as crowds of people, just throngs of people, come together to enter the city of Jerusalem in preparation for these huge celebrations. These crowds, as they gathered together, inspired this deep sense of belonging. And then as they worshiped together throughout the week, as they shared um, meals together, as they worshiped, they were transformed into a family of sorts, the family of God that ate and lived together all throughout the celebration. The Hebrew that's translated here as families connotes a very inclusive sense of families. It's a broad sense of family that reaches way beyond flesh and blood, that transcends our differences and the barriers that are sometimes there between us. World Communion Sunday is one of our higher holy days. It was celebrated for the very first time in 1933 at Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Hugh Thompson Kerr was the pastor there at the time, and he was also serving as moderator of the Presbyterian General Assembly, which is not unlike the United Methodist Church, Church's General Conference. When these bodies gather together, it's not to celebrate High Holy Days exactly, but it's not entirely unlike a pilgrimage. People from all around the world gather in a central location to prayerfully consider issues that relate to the denomination as a whole. These bodies are responsible for the decision-making that relates to the whole denomination. These are also the bodies in the church that resolve controversies. Well, apparently during his service as moderator to the Presbyterian General Assembly, Dr. Kerr, he witnessed a fair amount of divisiveness. And in response to that, he conceived of World Communion Sunday. It was his attempt to bring churches together in a service of Christian unity. The practice has extended to many mainline denominations, including our own, which is very helpful because the United Methodist Church has known its fair share of divisiveness over the years. In fact, right now, there is a divide in the United Methodist Church. 
There's a divide around our biblical and theological understandings of human sexuality and their various implications um, in terms of how we are to include and be in ministry with and for the LGBTQ community. So today, in anticipation of our celebration of World Communion Sunday, as we affirm Christian unity, and as we celebrate all the people around the world who gather at tables much like ours to receive the same banquet of grace that our host Jesus Christ invites us to, it's also very appropriate for us to consider and be mindful of those who may not be at the table, maybe because they don't feel welcome. To do this, I want to begin by sharing a little bit of the history about how or about where the United Methodist Church currently is as it relates to human sexuality and, and how we got there as a denomination. The divide in our denomination around human sexuality um, has existed since at least 1972. That was the first general conference where language related to homosexuality was entered into our Book of Discipline. The Book of Discipline is the book in the United Methodist Church that outlines the official doctrine and um, organizational structures and procedures of the United Methodist Church. And in 1972 at General Conference, there were people there who proposed adding to the Book of Discipline in the section that relates to social principles this phrase, persons of homosexual orientation are persons of sacred worth. Well, that, of course, sparked quite a bit of debate, conversation, went round and round until finally they agreed as a body to accept that language into the Book of Discipline only if it included this additional phrase, we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider it incompatible with Christian teaching. Well, after this general conference, there, were many more, there have been many more, of course, and the conversation has continued at every single general conference since then. And along the way, various things have been introduced or edited or softened um, in the Book of Discipline. In 1980, the general conference added to the social principles, we affirm the sanctity of the marriage covenant, which is expressed in love, mutual support, personal commitment, and shared fidelity between a man and a woman. The General Conference felt the need to be explicit about how they understood marriage because they wanted to prevent um, local churches and local pastors from marrying same-gendered couples. Then in 1984, when General Conference met, after discussion, they adopted as a standard for ordained clergy that you must be committed to fidelity in marriage and celibacy and singleness, and they also adopted the clause that, uh, or language that prohibited self-avowed practicing homosexuals from being ordained. So each time annual conference would meet, there was a new element of this whole relationship that would uh, kind of rise to the surface and, and they would address by adding additional language. In 1988 at General Conference, um, there was an effort, and it was successful, to soften the incompatibility clause a little bit by adding, although we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teaching, we do affirm that God's grace is available to all. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. 
And then in 1996, General Conference um, explicitly stated in the Book of Discipline that clergy were prohibited from performing same-gender weddings. All of this continued every single general conference, and in most recent general conferences, the conversation has escalated each time we meet. By the way, the general conference meets every four years, generally. And um, so at this most recent general conference in 2016, things, again, were escalating. They were getting very heated. It was getting confusing and chaotic. Uh, many of the same proposals that had been introduced in years past were being introduced again, and it became evident to some who'd been at many general conferences that this was not leading in a good direction, this wasn't going to be helpful, and um, much like many previous general conferences, they were continuing just to do harm to one another um, because the conversation wasn't productive and it wasn't helpful. So somebody stepped up to the microphone at general conference and um, asked the bishops who were presiding there to please lead us, which may sound weird. You might think, well, the bishops, of course they lead us. Well, at general conference, they actually, they don't have a vote, um, and so their leading is not very direct. They more preside. But in this particular case, a specific request was made that the bishops would lead the church in a more fruitful way of moving the church forward as it relates to this particular topic. And so the Council of Bishops decided that they were going to create what is called a commission on a way, the commission on a way forward. And it's made up of all sorts of people um, around the world. It's made up of bishops, it's made up of pastors, it's made up of lay people. Um, it includes 32 people from nine different nations around the world. It includes people from all jurisdictions around the world. Um, and it also includes people with a wide spectrum of theological understandings. There are people who are um, highly conservative that are on this commission. There are people that are um, much more progressive or liberal on this issue. There are straight people and there are gay people um, on this commission. Well, the special session, oh, and they also decided, they have decided since then, that we will have a special session of general conference, which is being called in February of 2019, so this upcoming February. There will be a special called conference um, meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, and at that conference, those who gather, the delegates, are going to receive from the commission a report on three proposed plans um, that the Commission on a Way Forward came up with during the period of time that they were meeting. Um, and the hope is that there they will act, they'll vote to adopt one of the plans. Again, only the delegates vote, not the bishops. Now, the, the Commission on a Way Forward did present all of their work to the bishops, um, and so they, they, have, uh, they were very familiar with the various um, plans. So out of this general, this uh, commission on a way forward, as I said, there emerged three different plans. And I want to give you just a brief summary of each of the three plans that will be presented at this called conference. First is the connectional conference plan. Now this plan, what it does is it reorganizes the church and instead of having geographical jurisdictions, it will organize us into three 
branches of the church that's based on theological leanings. They're referred to as connectional conferences. There'll be a traditional conference, a unity conference, and a progressive conference. And um, each jurisdiction that currently exists would vote on which of these new uh, branches they would become a part of. And then once the jurisdictions have voted and said, well, we want to be a part of, you know, the traditional conference or the unity conference or the progressive conference, then all of the annual conferences within that old jurisdictional conference, then they need to decide, well, are we going to, are we going to go uh, and affiliate with the same jurisdiction that, that our geographical jurisdiction has chosen to belong to? Or are we going to choose to affiliate with a different um, jurisdiction or a different conference? Will you go back just a minute, Jonathan? Um, and then after that, the local churches go through the same process. Um, and then go on. Now, this would require all of the annual conferences to adopt a number of different constitutional amendments. And every annual conference would have to pass amendments by two-third majority of conference votes from ballots of all the conferences to adopt this particular plan to begin with. This plan, that plan is extremely complicated. There are many ways in which it would resolve some of our differences, but in order to manage it from an administrative point of view, it is the opinion of the bishops that it would be a nightmare. It would be really hard to make happen. And so they don't have a lot of hope that that particular model would be passed at general conference. Next is the traditional plan. Uh, this plan would reaffirm the United Methodist Church's current standard on human sexuality. It would keep all of the language that we already have in the discipline related to um, how we include GLBT persons into our body. And uh, United Methodist clergy would not be allowed to preside at same-gender weddings, um, and same-gender weddings would not be allowed on United Methodist property. Self-avowed practicing homosexuals would not be eligible for ordination in the United Methodist Church. And United Methodists who couldn't live within these standards set by the Book of Discipline, they would be encouraged to leave the denomination and to form a church that is consistent with their own values. So the traditional plan keeps all the language and they double down on penalties related with violating um, the rules. Annual conferences would be required to vote on whether or not they would uphold the discipline. And if they chose, if they said they couldn't, um, then they could no longer use the United Methodist name. Bishops would have to certify whether or not they would uphold and enforce the discipline. And if not, they would be referred to the Council of Bishops for possible leave or early retirement. And there would be a mandatory minimum penalty for clergy who perform same-gender weddings, and only persons who certify that they will uphold and enforce the discipline could serve on conferences, like the Board of Ordained Ministry. Those are the people who assess readiness for ministry and decide whether or not someone can be ordained. Annual conferences could vote to leave the United Methodist Church and form a new denomination, and then the local churches in those annual conferences, should that happen, they could vote whether or not they were going to stay within the United Methodist Church and affiliate with a different conference, or if they were going to leave the United Methodist Church with their conference to join this new denomination. The good news is, is it wouldn't require 
the annual conference to adopt any constitutional amendments. <laughs> so be fairly easy to administer. Um, and then finally, there's the one church plan. This is the plan that's kind of a middle way. It's much less complicated than the connectional plan, um, and it allows for all who are currently affiliated with the United Methodist Church to remain affiliated. The nomination recognized that marriage is between two adults. It would not explicitly state that it was between one man and one woman, and it would remove all of the prohibitive language that's currently in the discipline that's related to the GLBTQ community. It would allow me as an individual pastor to decide whether or not I would preside at same-gender weddings, and it would give local churches um, the right to decide whether or not same-gender same gender weddings could take place on their property. And it allows annual conferences, uh, which are made up of the clergy session and the Board of Ordained Ministry, it would allow them to decide whether or not they would ordain self-avowed practicing homosexual people. And again, it doesn't require us to adopt, to adopt any constitutional amendments, so it's pretty simple to um, administer as well. Well, when the Council of Bishops were presented with all of this work, they uh, went aside, they discussed it, they prayed about it, they thought about it, and they decided as a body that they would present all of the work of the Commission on a Way Forward at the called General Conference in February, and they chose to recommend the One Church Plan specifically as the model that they felt like had the most potential to move the church forward in a way that kept as many people as possible at the table while at the same time making room for additional people. Um, in a recent blog, our own bishop, Robert Schnazy, shared that um, the Council of Bishops voted overwhelmingly to recommend the One Church Plan at the special session. Um, as I said, it has the most potential to keep everyone at the table, and it allows congregations. This was one thing that was very important to Bishop Schnazy, to our bishop. It allows local congregations to be in ministry in ways that are consistent with their own understanding of human sexuality, and it allows them to uh, be very contextual in their ministry. Um, so his feeling was that this plan actually offers the opportunity for us to multiply the United Methodist witness around the world um, because different congregations are going to reach different people um, by different means. Yep, same thing. And um, so all of these plans have been presented uh, to the Council of Bishops, which, by the way, is made up of all currently presiding bishops and all retired bishops of the United Methodist Church. So it's, it's a huge gathering of people. This particular plan is meant, or the One Church plan is meant to um, keep us together. It's meant to be a unifying um, effort within the church as we move forward and make some progress in terms of how we're going to relate to the GLBT community. I think it expresses what it might look like, how good and pleasing it might be when families live together as one. As the psalmist says, it's like expensive oil poured over the head, running down into the beard, which honestly, when I first heard that metaphor, I went, ugh. Because I don't like the idea of oil saturating my hair and running over my face. 
But in ancient Israel, when pilgrims were journeying to these feasts in Jerusalem, many of them walked for days and days and days, and most often it was during the summer months when it was really hot. And when there was this hot wind blowing, and this wind would carry this fine, powdery dust, it was really rough on the skin, very drying. Think chapped lips and cracked, parched skin. Under those particular circumstances, I would imagine that it would be divine to rub oil into your face and hands. And then there's this parallel image in the psalm, this image of dew streaming down onto the mountains, again, in the time of year when it is most dry, when it is most hot, all evoking this sense of divine nurture and care, the sense of God's desire to bring and to restore life. In ancient Israel, the family was the center of life. Family was considered essential for the health, not only of the individual, but of the community. To live together as one was to live in its most abundant sense. Look how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. This psalm has traditionally been associated with the Lord's Supper, which is meant, again, to bring the whole family of God to the table where Christ is host and the hospitality he models for us is sacrificial. I love all the accounts of the Last Supper, but the one that was brought to mind for me most as I reflected and worked on this sermon was Matthew's account. In Matthew's gospel, two days before the Passover, Jesus warns his disciples that his crucifixion is imminent. And then they go and they visit a friend in Bethany, and as they're reclining at the table eating their dinner, this mysterious woman shows up, and she pours an entire vase of very expensive perfume over Jesus' head. Well, the disciples are appalled. They look around and they say, kind of in anger, what, what is she thinking? Why would she waste all of that valuable perfume? We could sell that. We get a lot of money. We could help the poor with that. But Jesus says, no. What she has done is very, very good. By anointing me with perfume, she's prepared me for burial. So against that backdrop, against the backdrop of Jesus' looming crucifixion and burial, Jesus and his disciples gather in a room to share the Passover meal, a meal that celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt at God's mighty and gracious hand. And as they gather around that table, a table not unlike our own, the gospel says that Jesus took his place at the table with the 12 disciples. Jesus took his place at the table. That phrase has captured me for years now, because as I hear it, what I think is, 
What if Jesus hadn't taken his place? If Jesus had not taken his place at the table, there'd be no place there for me. So given the radical hospitality of Christ, and as we await the outcome of the special session of the General Conference in February, I think it behooves us to reflect on who we are as a church. As we take our place at this table, what sort of hospitality will we extend? Will we make room at this table for all of God's children? Regardless of which plan passes, it will be important for us to know who we are. So the church council has asked that we, this body of Christ, consider three proposals. There's an insert in your bulletin. I invite you to take that home and read it, reference it. And the invitation is that we would consider within our small groups, our Sunday school classes, any committees or ministry teams that we may be a part of, that we would consider, first of all, adopting a welcome statement. And the content of that welcome statement is here. Um, What's being proposed is that we adopt the statement that says, at Westlake United Methodist Church, we affirm that all persons are created in the image of and are equally loved by God. As followers of Christ, whose love is boundless, we invite and welcome all people of every age, race, gender identity, ethnicity, sexual orientation, marital status, economic standing, education level, physical and mental capacity, national origin, and family configuration into full participation in the life, ministries, worship, and sacraments of this faith community. I know that some people are wondering, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to so explicitly extend a welcome to all these different groups of people? And I wish we didn't need to. I truly wish that it was absolutely assumed by every single human being on this planet that were they to walk in the rooms of, into the doors of this church, they would be very warmly welcomed and accepted and loved. But unfortunately... There are groups of people in the world who have over the years been marginalized for various reasons, and the GLBT community in particular is explicitly named in our Book of Discipline as being excluded from the full life and ministries of our church. And so there's no reason for them to assume that any Methodist church they walk into will welcome them. That's why we would want to adopt a statement like this to make that explicit. The second um, proposal is that we consider affiliating with Reconciling Ministries Network, and that is an organization that is um, inspiring churches to be fully inclusive of all God's children, to celebrate all of God's children. There are some frequently asked questions here about RMN networks, um, in case you have questions about who they are, and the reason that we would want to affiliate with them, this church, is because many people who are looking for a new church home and they value a home, a church home that is inclusive of all people, they go to this website and can search for churches in particular geographical areas that 
um, have welcome statements that explicitly welcome all people. And it's not just the GLBTQ community that searches this site for this information. There are many heterosexual individuals and families who highly value raising their families in an inclusive community. And so um, there are many people who search for church homes that way. And then finally, we're proposing that we as a church support the One Church Plan. And the reason for that is um, because I was just at Leadership Institute out at Church of the Resurrection last week. That's the church that um, Reverend Adam Hamilton leads. I think many of you might be familiar with his name. Um, and he and Bishop Schnazy led a session talking about um, all of these plans and encouraged those who might be in support of this plan to um, voice that support. The reason is because most of the time, the voices that are loudest, the voices that speak out the most, are those voices that are on either extreme. And so many times, the people who are gathering at General Conference, they might not be aware of how many people are in favor of this more moderate middle way. And so if we were to express our support of the One Church Plan, it would help them to understand that. Over the next few weeks, um, our church council will be gathering information from y'all. Hopefully they'll be hearing back from you. They'll certainly reach out to you by mid-November when they will meet again. And the hope is that they will have enough information and feedback from y'all that we'll be comfortable making some sort of decision about how we will um, support these three different proposals. If you're not in a small group during the Sunday school hour next Sunday, um, there will be a group of people in the library who you can join to um, be a part of the discussion. You know, it's only, it's only because Jesus took his place at the table. It's only because he took his place as host, because he extended the most extravagant hospitality we could ever imagine, a sacrificial hospitality offering a banquet of God's grace to all people at the expense of his own flesh and blood. It's only for that reason that there's a place at this table for me. It is only for that reason that there is a place at this table for you, for all of us gathered here, and for all of God's children around the world. I invite us all to be very prayerful about the type of hospitality that we as a church will extend. Amen.